G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, the Christian church has been under attack in the nation of Sri Lanka. After the Islamic extremist terror attacks on Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about that this morning and really zeroing in on the purpose of such an atrocity. Because while there's been reporting on the issue, uh, there's only been a little bit of mild speculation as to why. So we'll ask why, why, why? And we'll continue the conversation and broadening the perspectives here, the context here, about these regions in South Asia, including India. A recent report shows that Christian persecution in India has jumped by 57% this year. Well, the people of India are in election season. It's such a huge population. Their election season began on the 11th of April and concludes on the 19th of May. Hindu nationalism is the issue there in India, uh, in India, and uh, it's become a major issue there. It seems that wherever Hindu nationalism advances, persecution of Christians escalates. So whether we're talking Islamic persecution of Christians or Hindu persecution of Christians, the motive is held in common to eradicate the Christian presence and the Christian voice. So how do we deal with that? Well, it is always so good to be able to welcome Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She also serves as Director of Christian Faith and Freedom that's based in Canberra and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome along to 2020. And thank you for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, always enjoy our conversations, uh, not because they're fun conversations, but because they're always so important and shed such light on some of the issues that the whole world is facing. Let's talk about the Sri Lankan uh, issue first of all, those terror attacks, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Of course, the death toll in Sri Lanka has been revised down now and uh, the numbers settling around that 250, 253 people. What are your thoughts on the whole issue that's developed out of the Resurrection Day terror attacks? Oh, yeah, they were just appalling. And it was it was such a surprise. Like, it was such a, a bolt out of the blue. I mean, a couple of years ago, there was, um, you know, the horrendous Resurrection Sunday terror attack in Pakistan and against Christians uh, gathering at a park after church for their Easter celebrations. And when something like that happens a terror attack against Pakistani Christians, you tend to not be overly surprised. In fact, you're almost anticipating it and you're praying that it will not happen, that God will protect them. But this in Sri Lanka was actually completely unprecedented. So uh, Sri Lankan Christians, you know, they've been they've been targeted uh, during the Civil War. They were, you know, the, the, the Tamil, Hindu Tamils, you know, suspected them of not being loyal and Sinhalese Buddhists suspected them of not being loyal and 
And yet really it was the church was the only ground where the Sinhalese and the Tamils came together as one. Uh, and of course the rise of Sinhalese Buddhist nationalism, uh, that has uh, seen uh, increased levels of uh, violent Sinhalese Buddhist attacks on Christians. They're not huge. They're not like Islamic terror attacks. They're sort of more like menace. You know, you'll get these little mobs of of, um, of nationalistic Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist monks and they'll create menace around a church. They'll harass the people. They'll vandalize the property. They'll cause problems. But the biggest, the biggest uh, waves of Sinhalese persecution uh, have been in, in years past. It's really been fairly, fairly moderate over the last decade since the end of the Civil War. And then all of a sudden, this Easter attack by an Islamic group comes out of the blue. It really was unprecedented. So it's taken a lot of people by surprise. But I have to say, this is what's most shocking, is it should not have taken the Sri Lankan government by surprise because the Indian government... And the Indians, uh, the Indian government is very good on intelligence because they have to be. They live next door to Pakistan. They've got nuclear weapons facing each other. They have to have good intelligence. And the Indian intelligence has been telling Sri Lanka apparently for about a year that this uh, group was, was uh, radicalizing and preparing to uh, enact terror attacks. They warned them as much as a, a week before the attack and apparently even on the Sunday morning. But there is such a, a fracture in the Sri Lankan government that the departments weren't talking to each other. And so uh, a terror attack was perpetrated that should never have been able to have been perpetrated. So we've been hearing that the Sri Lankan government knew weeks in advance. Uh, what you're indicating here is that they probably had known for as much as a year. And when we, and we've had conversation before too, and in the lead up to Easter, I had a conversation with Open Doors and we were talking about the increased threat of persecution and attacks that come at Easter time. And then lo and behold, on Resurrection Day, an attack like this happens. And we've had this sort of conversation too before uh, that at Christmas time and at Easter time, mm-hmm. there is an increased likelihood. So if they knew so far in advance, when Easter comes, you might have thought that if there was any concern at all, that they would have increased their security at that time. But you're saying that within the Sri Lankan government, there was such fracture that they weren't talking, to, the departments not talking to one another, and therefore a real weakness in their own national security. Oh, absolutely. The Prime Minister and the President are essentially at war with each other. And uh, and so there's there's this whole fracture within the government where the departments are literally not talking to one another. Um, and uh, really, because these attacks could have been pre- uh, prevented. These men, uh, they just walked in with massive backpacks on their backs uh, any sort of, um, you know, like typical airport screening, you know, uh, uh, someone with a, you know, a wand like they do at the airport. You don't, don't even need a full metal detector machine, just a couple of security agents with a metal detector wand. They would have picked up uh, those bombs outside the churches and would have saved hundreds of lives, although they were enormous explosions. If, even if they'd gone off in the street, they still would have killed 
a lot of people. They were they were absolutely enormous, showing the degree to which they had um, uh, real expertise. So some of the some of these uh, Sri Lankan bombers had actually spent time in Syria, and in the in the last lot of in the they've arrested over a hundred people just recently. They've raided the headquarters. Of, of the group. They've arrested over a hundred people and some of those were foreigners. They were Syrians and Egyptians. There is definitely a connection with Islamic State. So they may have had some funding and some advice from Islamic State. But, um, I still, I'm still, I have to admit, I'm, I'm still a little bit bewildered as to why they carried out this attack and to, as to what they think, what they thought they were going to actually gain from it uh like terrorism has a political objective um a hate crime doesn't it? it's just a hate crime and it almost comes over to me like like a hate crime and i don't know what they're wanting uh if they actually thought the sri lankan government would would go soft on them they don't know the sri lankan government they don't know the sri lankan military they'll blow them off the face of the earth this will not be something that I would have thought a, uh, a minority of a minority should be attempting in Sri Lanka unless ISIS, unless Islamic State, so unless the paymasters of these guys are actually hoping to ignite a jihad to which they can rally international support. That's the only thing I can actually imagine. Uh, well, when we talk about uh, when we talk about issues of you know what was the purpose, uh, there are some things that all these attacks do seem to have in common, as you say, because it sends a signal, it ignites uh, the hearts and minds of those who are loyal to uh, that uh, that regime, uh, loyal to that ideology, uh, to rise up. And the idea that just like New Zealand, uh, considered to be a soft target, uh, that mm. somehow or other a soft target there in Sri Lanka. Yes, now the, Sri, the um, Sri Lankan government then said regarding New Zealand, they said, oh, this was retaliation for New Zealand. Well, that's not true. It was not retaliation for New Zealand. This attack has been in the planning probably since last year. This was an enormous uh, operation requiring incredible sophistication, and it would have been uh, in process in you know, being planned a long time before uh, Christchurch. And the thing is, if to say it that it was a retaliation for Christchurch means it's over. They've done it. They've done their retaliation. We can all move on. But it's definitely not the case. In fact, in the um, uh, Islamic militants, when they're preparing suicide missions, they will make a, uh, a video of their declaration of uh, uh, obey, their obeyer, I think is the word, their a pledge of allegiance to, to their leaders. And in this case, it was to Islamic State and the pledge of allegiance to al-Baghdadi. Now, they say clearly on that, um, on that video that they do not need an excuse to kill the unbelievers. In fact, they say it is the ongoing duty of every Muslim to kill the unbelievers. And uh, they say this is a war that has started a long time ago. It's ongoing and... Um, uh, we will be killing unbelievers and crusaders uh, until the end. 
So it really, it isn't linked to the New Zealand attack at all, um, which makes me wonder if they're, well, we think they probably were planning subsequent attacks because in the raid on their headquarters, the authorities have seized massive amounts of explosives. More people have blown themselves up. Um, but they're a small group. I, I don't think they can... I, I wonder if they actually had an oversized view of themselves or, as I said, if their paymasters were actually using them to try and uh, trigger a response from the military around which... Uh, ISIS could uh, provide a rallying call. Um, they they came from a uh, a, uh, a town on the east coast uh, called Katankundi, which is just south of Batakaloa, where the Evangelical Zion Church was targeted. And Katankundi is an almost exclusively Muslim town, almost the only exclusively Muslim town in Sri Lanka. Um, and there's been a lot of influence from Saudi Arabia. Uh, the mosques have been radicalized and been, have been preaching, you know, Saudi Arabian Wahhabi Islam. But it has divided the community. They're not, you know, the community is profoundly divided about this. They, they're not all one on it. But I wonder if those Muslims who perpetrated this attack had lost a sense of how small they actually are in the scheme of things in um, in Sri Lanka. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line open if you'd like to contribute to our conversation. 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. Elizabeth, let's extend our conversation uh, beyond Sri Lanka, just to the north, uh, where the massive election is underway in India. Over the past five years, the Hindu nationalist BJP party has been ruling, and uh, they've taken India to new heights uh, in Intensifying this nationalism, which means uh, really uh, trying to stamp out Christianity. Uh, what are your thoughts for what's happening in India right now? Uh, yes, well, the election is enormous. The election is actually mind-blowing. They have 900 million eligible voters, which sort of blows my mind. They have 2,350 registered parties, which is just, just the thought is enough to give me nightmares. Yes. So it's a huge thing. It takes place... Uh, in seven phases from the 11th of April to the 19th of May, and the results will be declared on the 23rd of May. Now, the big issue with India is this rise of Hindu nationalism. Now, Hinduism as like a religion and a cultural practice is not inherently hostile to Christianity because Hinduism is a polytheistic faith. There are gods everywhere. So what's another one? You know, like, you believe in your God, I believe in my God. It's never been a, a huge issue. The issue comes with the high caste uh, Indians of India. So in the, the high caste, they look at Christianity, which is egalitarian and lifts up the downtrodden and sort of levels everybody because of sin, we are all sinners, all have sinned, all will die, all need salvation. And so it's a, it has a very leveling effect. And 
you know, if you're a low-caste Hindu or a Dalit, that's an untouchable, someone who just sweeps the, the refuse out of the streets every day, then to have this knowledge that God loves you and that he doesn't view you according to your caste, that's an uplifting, wonderful thing. But if you're a high-caste Hindu and you're a, a Brahmin, a member of the priestly caste who has inherited this incredible privilege and power, then Christianity is your greatest enemy and your worst nightmare. And um, that's where the, the hostility comes in. And Hindu nationalism is about really high-caste Hindus uh, perpetuating Hinduism forever, really for the sake of their own power and privilege. Um, it's got a long, long history. I think personally it's changed a little bit over time when it was first um, created in the beginning of the 1900s uh, during uh, the British uh, rule in India. It was, um, it was a, a movement to try and unite all the Hindus against the colonial power, to drive out the colonial power. And the, the person who um, devised Hindu nationalism, V.D. Savakar, he wrote this, this ideology while he was in prison with caliphate Muslims. And I actually believe that he, a lot of his ideas come from Islam, actually. So the idea was to get rid of caste and unite all Hindus together and you'd just have one big Hindu block. And you would have... Instead of caste, you would have religious apartheid. There are the Hindus, and then there's everyone else. And it would be just like racial apartheid, but religious apartheid. The Hindu and the other unite everyone together, and then you'd have the strength to drive the British out. Personally, I think it's morphed a little bit. I think today it's very much about preserving the power of high-caste Hindu elites. And... Um, by, by using the same sort of method, by trying to unite all Hindus uh, in defense of Hinduism. And what they've done is they've created uh, uh, this enemy, and the enemy is the other. So that's the Muslim and it's the Christian. And Christians are viewed as an enemy, that they are, they are a threat to social cohesion, they are a threat to national security, they are a separatist, they, uh, they should either return to the Hindu mainstream or they will face you know, the wrath of the people. So they've set up this whole system to try and unite Hindus really by, by creating uh, this sense of the fear of the other. And so every year that the Hindu nationalists have had power, persecution of Christians has escalated massively. And one of the main reasons why it escalates is because Hindu nationalism has become so popular that people now, Hindus can now persecute Christians with impunity. Uh, the police are Hindu nationalists. The local government is Hindu nationalist. And uh, the persecution with impunity uh, means that persecution just continues to escalate. And the real risk is that the BJP, the Hindu nationalist BJP, will be re-elected uh, this year and that the advance of Hindu nationalism will, will continue. So we're praying that at the very least 
they will be forced into a coalition government that will keep them reasonably hamstrung. But what we need to pray for with India is that there is a breakthrough against Hindutva, this militant Hindu nationalism, because without that breakthrough, India's on a very dark and dangerous path. Okay, so uh, the word to appreciate here, Hindutva, which is this intensifying Hindu nationalism, and uh, as you say, it might be promoted as a way to uh, egalitarianise the caste system, but that probably isn't the motive of those who are driving it because the caste system will still be there culturally intact, but exactly. the Hindus will be united, and what this nationalism does is create a sense of the other, the other is a threat, and the Christians, uh, even though, as we know, they'd have the same sort of motives as uh, as we all do, uh, and the motivation is going to be love to reach out to people who are even at the lowest caste level, uh, but that is going to be seen as a threat and one that needs to be stamped out with violence. So how does the violence look, Elizabeth, in places like India when, the, when this Hindu nationalism uh, takes its effect against Christians? The most common sort of violence that we see is um, groups of Hindu nationalists. Uh, they, it can be a group of uh, half a dozen right through to 20, 30 or 40 Hindu nationalists, often armed with clubs and sticks, uh, will go up to a, um, a place where Christians are, playing to, are praying together, maybe a house church or a church facility or a prayer meeting in a home, and they will attack it. And they will violently attack people. They will beat them. They will strip the um, the saris off the women, and they will break the bones of people. They beat them seriously. And uh, when the police finally arrive, because you know a Christian has managed to call the police, usually it's the pastor that gets arrested, not the Hindu nationalists. And so th this is where the impunity comes in. The Hindu nationalists know that they can beat up the Christians, they can attack them, they can burn churches, and they will never get arrested. It's usually the Christians that get arrested. And what happens to the Christians, especially pastors and evangelists, is that they will be charged with the crime of uh, forcible conversions. So the Hindu nationalist ideology says that everybody... Uh, was who's an Indian was really uh, is is born a Hindu by culture. They see Hinduism as a race as much as anything else, and that if they're not a Hindu, it's because either they or someone in their ancestry has been tricked uh, and they've converted to Christianity because they've been deceived, or maybe they were tricked with food, or maybe they were tricked with money or lied to. And now they have to come back to Hinduism. And if they don't, then they're regarded as an enemy. So they view all conversions uh, from Hinduism to anything else as an act of deceit, uh, as an act of force. You have tricked someone, you have done it by force, and uh, they just cannot accept that a Hindu will convert to Christianity. Elizabeth, they, they, we're going to take a break. for homecoming. The news uh, is uh, not going to, to wait for us. So we'll continue our conversation after Vision National News. Elizabeth Kendall's our guest, religious liberty analyst, but I've uh, invited listeners to participate. Let's take a call, first off, uh, from Sue, who is in Brisbane. Sue, a special welcome along to 2020. Oh, hi, Neil and Elizabeth. Uh, look, 
Uh, we've got a friend, a pastor that's in India who comes and stays with us. Um, and he at times was under incredible persecution. Um, so much so that last time he was over with his wife, uh, she said to us that every time he goes out, uh, she knows there's a chance that he might not come back. But one of the things that he did say while he was here was that the um, Hindus target, they, they attack the Muslims as well as the Christians, mm. but the Muslims, um, when they rape the Muslim girls or attack them, the Muslims go back after them and the Hindus know that there's retribution, whereas with the Christians, they don't attack back. And so he said that they're a real easy target. And uh, so I was just wondering, Elizabeth, what you think or have heard of that? Thank you, Sue. Elizabeth, what are your thoughts for Sue? Yes, thank you, Sue. And that, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, when you uh, attack Muslims, like as has ha- as happened in uh, northwest of India, uh, the Muslims will retaliate. They will declare a jihad against you and uh, they will retaliate, especially at the local level. Um, so if there is a local attack against Muslims, Muslims will, attack, uh, will retaliate at the local level. Um, and that retaliation is written into their scriptures. Uh, retaliation is for you, the Quran says. You know, they are, uh, Muslims are religiously have a duty to retaliate. Um, Christianity is different. Christiani- Christians are taught by Jesus to turn the other cheek and to love and to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have to be careful about their security. doesn't mean they don't talk to the government about their security. Um, the government is the one there that has ultimate responsibility for the security uh, of their citizens. But yes, the Hindus know that the Christians are a soft target. But, you know, the grace shown by Christians can be incredibly powerful, can be more powerful than what a lot of people understand, to see that a loving response uh, from that comes after hatred, uh, people are, are one to Christ through such a response. But uh, that doesn't mean they lie down and be passive like a doormat. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we lie down and be passive and, and watch them get killed either. Uh, secu- the security is really important. And murder is evil and torture is evil and rape is evil. And so we have to lift our voice up against it. But yes, that's exactly one reason why the Christians are so- such a soft target in India. And the big problem, I think, in India is the fact that the police are not protecting them it's t- and the government is not protecting them. Sue from Brisbane, thank you so much for your call. And I want to invite listeners to participate in the conversation. 1-800-316-316. 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line is open. Let's talk about persecution here, Elizabeth, because uh, it's interesting, as you say, uh, we turn the other cheek. Uh, we are, in fact, as Christian believers, proactive in love uh, towards a community. Uh, but you do say that doesn't mean that we're doormats and there are an awful lot of ways that response can happen. Uh, in fact, as I reflected, as I did uh, just a few moments ago, one of your books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, was all really about how Christians face persecution. 
Let's talk about how you might respond to persecution. And uh, we're not seeing anything of this level in Australia at the moment, but let's put ourselves into the scenario as to what we might do if we were in Sri Lanka or if we were in uh, India right now. Give us some insights into ways that we might respond or be prayerful about how those who are in those circumstances respond to persecution. Well, generally, when I, when I speak on this subject, I provide people with uh, four actions that the church can engage in, and three of them, at least, I've written on in full on my elizabethkendall.com website under the tab that says uh, action. There's a, a tab there labelled action, and I've written on these subjects in sort of more detail and given a uh, more detailed explanation of how you can go about it. So the first thing is that we need to continue in mission, so we have to go, um, because Jesus makes it very clear in John three six in John sixteen chapter three, they will do these things. That is, they will persecute you because they have not known the Father nor me. So while persecute, so while mission rather might get us into a lot of trouble, it's actually the only solution. We have to go with the gospel. We just have to. And the other thing we have to do is we have to speak up. Right? Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and, the, and defend the rights of all the poor and the needy and the destitute and judge fairly. So we need to speak so that the people who are suffering persecution are not just rendered invisible. Because if, if nobody talks about what's happening, then uh, it is like they're invisible. Uh, and people can do what they like to them. So we have to raise our voice. We have to, and we have to talk about what's happening both in our churches, in our small groups. Uh, we can talk on Talkback Radio as, as we are doing now. And I'm so grateful to you, Neil, for making this opportunity to talk about this on the airwaves. It's always we my privilege. All, yeah, we can write letters to the editor of the paper. We can write letters to our, our MPs, letting them know, our local MPs know that we expect them to care about the issue of religious freedom and those who are persecuted. We also can give generously. In fact, I'd say we need to be giving like we've never given before. Um, in James chapter 2, 15 to 17, we read, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? And so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the fact is today we have millions of Christians our brothers and sisters who are destitute, they are displaced on account of their Christian faith, they've been forced to flee their homes, they have been, uh, they're grieving, they're suffering, and um, we need to be reaching out to them uh, from our pocket, from, with, with, with aid. Um, and, you know, Jesus says very clearly, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And what you did not do for my brothers and sisters, you did not do for me. Right. And, of course, I believe the greatest thing that we can do and that something we can all do is that we must pray and we must realize that we are in a spiritual battle um, you know, that Muslim is not our enemy. <laughs> that Muslim is our mission field. And even the terrorists 
that perpetrate acts against us, they are proxies of the devil. He uses them, he exploits them, he uses them, and they die in the process. Uh, we are in a spiritual battle, and we need to take up our spiritual weapons, which are mission and prayer and grace, and we need to be praying. And I often tell people, ad prayer is advocacy to the highest authority, it is serious business with God, and it is one of the most underrated and neglected privileges of the, uh, um, of the modern Western church. And I just really believe if we could be serious in these things, it would make the most incredible difference to the church in the world, and it would be such a wonderful witness to the watching world. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. There's a whole bunch of calls uh, who are lining up here. Let's uh, take them, and uh, we need to be probably quick on responses here. Time's running short. Let's hear from Anne in Fernie Grove in Queensland. Hello, Anne. Welcome along. Hello, Neil. Yeah, I was born in Sri Lanka and came over 50 years ago, and we went back on a holiday in 2004. Now, when we were traveling from Colombo to Gaul, a Buddhist driver pointed out to us a Buddhist temple and a village uh, very close to it on the main road, and he said that, that that temple had been bought up by the Muslims, financed from the Emirates. Mm. And he said that the, uh, he, he knew that from talking to people that, the, the Muslims were asked to purchase any land that came up for sale on any main roads. Now, these Buddhists were willing to sell their temple to the Muslims. So it's rather a surprise that they, ever, uh, they didn't attack the Muslims, they attacked the Christians instead. And uh, I've got lots of friends still in Sri Lanka who are Muslims, who went to school together. So it's very interesting to find out what's been going on there. And what a one amazing insight. Uh, your response here, Elizabeth? Yes, I've been reading about this, and thank you, Anne, for bringing this up, that Saudi Arabia has actually, and the Gulf, the Gulf Emirates, have been pumping quite a good deal of money into the, the Muslim communities in Sri Lanka to radicalise them to what I call, say, I say they are Wahhabizing them. They're trying to turn the Muslims into Wahhabis. I mean, they do this everywhere. They're doing this in Africa and all across Asia. They pump the money in. And that's really interesting, the purchasing of land along the main roads. That's just so typical of the sort of things that you hear. I've heard the same things from Tanzania. Where, the, where Muslims are buying up the land along the road and, you know, every kilometre or so there's another mosque built, a mosque with a, with a drinking uh, uh, pump and everything and uh, they're making inroads uh, that, right, that way. And it's a real a warning, you know, to be wary of the infiltration of Saudi Arabia and Gulf Arabs because it's not, it's not without strings. It's not done for... Uh, benevolent humanitarian purposes. It's done for the advance of Islam. And it's, it's sad. And it, it's dividing the community there. I read an article this morning, uh, Muslims in, uh, this, uh, the, the Muslim town that the 
terrorists mainly came from, Katankundi, um, Muslims in that town saying, we hate this radicalization. We live in Sri Lanka, not the Gulf. We like it the way it is. We don't want it to be radicalized. So it's becoming very divisive, and I, I really hope that these Muslims who want to live peacefully, want to be Sri Lankan first and foremost, I hope that they can get the uh, the high ground in this debate in Sri Lanka. And from Fernie Grove, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316, taking calls. Let's hear from John in Perth. Hello, John. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for listening in. Uh, Elizabeth, great program. Um, thank you. <clears throat> What I wanted to say was that uh, there are two particular areas. One is in Sri Lanka. It's quite evident that when you have uh, a nation as poor as Sri Lanka or from India, where I've come from, where I've grown up, you have a situation where all the minorities are at risk because Mm. they have very, very poor um, people all around them and the nation as such is focused inwardly. I think over the past eight to ten years, uh, Australia as a nation has, and I've been here 48 years, so I've watched governments of various colors come and go. I think as a nation, we've had a foreign policy failure, and I think what, what the world, as it's changing now, is teaching us that... Uh, from an Australian government point of view, you know, our politicians need to uh, change from being reactive to situations like this to being proactive. And we need to have a very proactive foreign policy which underpins arrangements, agreements that allow us as a nation to work with the governments of all these different countries, no matter which country it is, for the protection of minorities, because mm. when you have the protection of minorities, then what, ha- what can happen is that all those people who are doing so much good work in Sri Lanka and India, etc., can actually flourish. And we had a wonderful message on the weekend, and it, wasn't, it had three parts. And the first part was share the burden. The second part was play your part and the third one was fight with prayer john i'll interrupt here let's get a response from elizabeth a lot of things that john is sharing there are important points elizabeth oh that was wonderful thank you john thank you so much for ringing in and i love those three points share the burden play a part and fight with prayer um that's pretty well been my message for the last 20 years um, Galatians 6, chapter 2, God calls us to uh, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And, the fact, and as for play a part, I, I was speaking at Belgrave Heights uh, over Easter about how Christians can respond to persecution. And, you know, it's the same as with salvation. The, the church, people don't... Here, the people don't become Christians, generally speaking, unless we go and share the gospel with them. So the, the mission of God involves the church getting up and playing its part. And likewise, the persecuted church 
it's really seriously at risk and it's suffering and it's bleeding and it's traumatized and it will not survive without us getting up and playing our part to love one another and to care for one another. And um, the church in the Middle East, the church in uh, Pakistan and India will really struggle to survive without us getting off the sofa and playing our part and fighting with prayer. To me, that is absolutely uh, critical. And, and what you had to say about government policy, I couldn't agree with you more. The whole thing, the whole problem is with the West is we are completely tied up in political correctness. And it's this political correctness that prevents really intelligent government personnel and diplomats from actually saying the things that they know to be true in their heart and from being more proactive. Instead, they sit there all tied up with political correctness until there's nothing they can do but react. And until they get over that, that fear of, you know, uh, that comes from political correctness and the fear that stops them speaking honestly and openly, then we're, we're sort of tied up in knots and uh, freedom of speech is thus, you know, key and absolutely critical to everything. Thank you for calling in, John. Thank you so much to John in Perth. Time is short. Let's take one more call, I think. Joe is in WA. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I'll make it short and sweet. Uh, I'm a former soldier in, uh, in the first Gulf War, and we are living in, like you, that gentleman said, we're living in, in perilous times. And this war, whether we like it or not, has to be fought in a special forces fashion because, you know what, your enemy doesn't fight fair, so you have to adapt and evolve. And that's why operations like the SAS and other special forces of the world were created to counter this thing. Yeah, I do believe in power and prayer, but even back in Jesus' time, they had to pick up the sword, they had to pick up the shield, and they had to go out and fight for righteous sakes. Because in the, in the Bible, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, they had to do it, okay? The New Testament came along and things have changed a bit, but we are uh, not since 9-11 in Bali and now in, um, uh, you know, um, uh, New Zealand where we had a, a, a shooter there, and even in the States where they had uh, uh, shootings in, 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 in churches and stuff like that. This is insane, man, and I'll tell you what, if we're not prepared uh, to use strength, then we might as well roll over and die because our, our enemies... Mm-hmm. Even though we pray for them, we have to do what's right, and we have to protect those who can't protect themselves. And the unspoken people are the ones behind the mass that you will never see doing God's handiwork and taking these guys out. Joe, they're not coming for good. They're coming for evil. Let's get a thought or two from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, your thoughts for Joe? Uh, yes, I've got, I've got absolutely no qualms at all with the fact that there needs to be a military response to, to a military threat. And this is primarily the responsibility of our government. And what happens is when the government fails to do what it's supposed to do, to keep the, to keep our country secure, because it fails in so, at so many levels in policy, when it fails to defend this country, um, that's when we end up with things getting really messy and going in a way that we really don't want to see it going, in the way of vigilantism. And I'm opposed to vigilantism. This is the responsibility of government. Um, and the government has to do it if they want, don't want to see vigilantism uh, rising up. The government has to do that which is its responsibility, which is to keep its citizens safe. And just before I finish, I'd love to just mention the six 
things that um, Ajith Fernando, he's a Sri Lankan evangelical who was in bed sick on Sunday morning in Colombo and didn't make it to church. He's a well-known um, missiologist, and he has put out six things that Christians, uh, six ways Christians should respond. Need to, to be very quick here, Elizabeth. Yep. Uh, just uh, take us through that six. Through we won't have time lament to enlarge. the loss. We have to lament. He said we can condemn the evil. We have to speak up and condemn it. He said we should alleviate suffering. We should be giving and helping the church. And we should leave vengeance to the Lord. And this is certainly leave vengeance to the government. The government has to respond. And don't bear false witness. So don't lump all Muslims in together and pray. The most important thing we can do is we must pray. Elizabeth Kendall, wonderful insights as always. Let me point people to elizabethkendall.com and uh, you'll be able to access Elizabeth's latest Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletins. You'll also be able to access her books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall is an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She's also Director of Christian Faith and Freedom. Now, there are a number of organizations that deal directly with issues to do with persecution. Let me encourage you to be a supporter of Christian Faith and Freedom. Elizabeth Kendall, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.